Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia at 9.30 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope you'll be able to join us, but in the meantime, enjoy this recording of last week's message. A good friend of mine, Tim Cole, he uh, likes to, he likes classic cars, and so years back, he ended up getting a car that he, that he really liked. It was kind of somewhat of a dream car for him. It was a, a 1970 Torino. Um, I'll show you the picture of it up here on the screen. Maybe you've seen it before. It's convertible, had the white, is it like, not leather, is it like vinyl? I don't know what it is, but you know like some of those classic cars where they kind of have that leathery sort of interior, maybe it's vinyl, I don't know, but it, it's, um, after a while, when you get into it, it smells like Crayola crayons when you get in. You know what I'm talking about? Like that, was the, that was riding around in this car. It kind of smelled like crayons. And, um, uh, and if you are familiar with the really old TV show Starsky and Hutch, this was the car, that kind of car from a Torino was, was kind of the, the star of that show. Um, so he, he, he had this car, and he used to love it, drive it around all, all over the place. He was a big Tiger Woods fan, so his, his, um, his license plate said, I'm Tiger. Uh, it, was, it was pretty cool. Um, but uh, now, and then, it, then for a while, then it said 70 Torino, just in case you didn't know. Um, anyway, so one day he was driving that car down 81, like towards Roanoke, kind of in that area, going down the interstate. And he noticed a bump while he was going. He was going along fine, and then something thumped, and he was like, oh, that was kind of weird. And so you know if you notice a bump in your car, you look around like your suspension, your steering, the brakes, like whatever. You try to figure out like what just happened. And he looked over on the interstate, he looked over and he saw his front wheel detached from the car and over several feet with the axle attached to the wheel also spinning. So the wheel and the axle were like over there. This is concerning if you're, if you're driving a car, right? Like this is problematic when your wheel is over there in the car. And then eventually I said, what did it do? And he said, it just spun and then eventually it like ran off the road. And so now you know you're only on three wheels going down the interstate. So he eventually like pulled that over and scratched up or whatever like to, to get out of it. But that kind of freaks you out when the wheels come off, right? Like that's not a, that's not a good feeling. That's, that's, that's got to be like slightly terrifying. Maybe you've experienced that as well. I, I thought it's crazy that the axle itself was still attached to the wheel and was over there. Um, but have you ever had a moment where the wheels came off? Not literally, but maybe figuratively, where things felt like the wheels came off, like things are going very badly. I had a moment like that in January of 2006. My wife and I, and at the time our two children, were planning to move to Richmond the second week of January. And so we had our house here in Carytown we had bought. We were ready to move up here. And the week we were about to move, um, I get a phone call from my mom. And my mom said, are you sitting down? So I did. And you know, when people say to you, are you sitting down, it's never a good thing that comes next, right? It's never like, are you sitting down, I won the Powerball, like it's not, it's not like that, right? It was bad news, right? It's like, are you sitting down? Okay, mom, I'm sitting down, what, what's the deal? She, and she goes, and this was on a Tuesday, she goes, well, your dad died yesterday, and your grandfather's about to die. Now, uh, that sounds a little nonchalant, but like my parents were divorced, they didn't have any contact, I didn't have much of a relationship with my dad either. So that was weird, and she said he died yesterday, she had found out that he stepped out of the shower at age 70, had a heart attack, fell over and dead. Um, okay, and then my grandfather, who was 96, and was, we knew that was maybe starting to get close to the end, um, he was not doing well, and he ended up dying 48 hours later. So in the same week, my dad and my grandfather died. 
And so we moved to Richmond on Saturday. Uh, Tim, who with the Torino, he showed up with his family and they helped us unload our, our moving truck here in Carytown. Um, and then on Sunday, the next day, I flew to England to officiate my grandfather's funeral. That was a weird week. It was weird feeling like the wheels had come off, like the sky is falling, like things have spiraled out of control, like you have a plan, you think things are going fine, and then you just get this massive curveball, and, and all of the hope and optimism that you had kind of drifts into something like disappointment and, and despair. And, and my guess is many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've had those moments where things were going well, and you got this giant curveball, and, and, and the hard stuff came, and the hard stuff usually starts with a D. It's disease, death, divorce, which turns to despair and dread, and you've experienced that, and you've had that moment where you thought, I don't know that this is ever going to get better, or I don't even know how this could ever get better. And you've been in that place where it felt like the sky is falling. And I want to talk about that today because we are continuing our series called Unseen. And we're looking at um, God's work in the unseen stuff. We've been studying, we started last week, the book of Esther in the Old Testament. And Esther's interesting because Esther never mentions God or Jesus or any of that, but it's in the Bible. So in order to see God's fingerprints and God's handiwork, you have to look for him in the unseen places, in the, in the cracks, in the shadows. And God is there, and he's doing things all throughout the story of Esther, but it's not as blatant and obvious. And in my own experience, some of the hardest places to, to see God at work is when things are bad. When it's 3 a.m. and you're wide awake, and you can't even imagine that the sun will come out. When you're in, the, you're in that place that theologians call the dark night of the soul, when you are sitting in that space and we've all sat there, when you're sitting there, it's hard to believe that there's a God at all. And if there is a God, he must not care. And even if he did care, he's not very fair. And you have that, like, is God there? Is, does he care? Is he fair? Um, you, you have that, that feeling. And maybe you've, you've been there. And so I want to talk about um, where the story goes take sort of a, a hard turn here in the book of Esther and, and how we can see God even in, in, those, in those hard moments. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to the podcast. We, we put it on our website every week. You can get it on iTunes and other places, the Area 10 Faith Community Podcast, and you can listen to Esther and, and kind of get the full background of last week. But let me give you just the quick summary to get you up to speed in case you missed it. Um, in the first two chapters of Esther, what we find out is that there's a king, Xerxes, King Xerxes, uh, also called Ahasuerus, uh, he was the king of, of the Persian Empire, which is a massive empire in the ancient world, and uh, in the, about the year 479, uh, after he had lost the Battle of Thermopylae, which is the battle the movie 300 is based on, he's on the losing side of that, so the bad guy in 300, this King Xerxes, in 479, he kicks his queen off the throne, Queen Vashti. She embarrasses him. He kicks her out. Uh, and he holds a Miss Persia beauty pageant for young women to come be his new queen. Uh, there's a girl named Esther. She's Jewish. So she's a, a, an ethnic minority living within the Persian Empire. She is being cared for. She's an orphan girl. She's being cared for by her cousin, Mordecai, uh, who's a little older than her. And he looks after her and tries to raise her. Um, and she's very pretty. We know this. And she basically wins the beauty pageant that goes on for like a year. And she becomes the new queen 
of, of the Persian Empire. Now, in some ways, this is great, right? Like rags to riches, orphan girl becomes queen, that kind of story. In other ways, you can say this is actually horribly patriarchal, uh, sexist, um, sexual slavery, um, forcing this girl to compete in something to, and then to marry this monster at the end of it, like that's what she has to do. So there's definitely that aspect of, of it as well. And so um, at least through the first two chapters, you can kind of go, okay, Esther becomes queen and isn't that great? Now she lives in the palace and the capital and, and, and then here we are and, and, and things are going along fine. Enter chapter 3, where the villain comes into the story. The villain of, this, of, of the whole Esther story is a guy who lives there in the capital city, and his name is Hamish. Just kidding, that's a different thing. His name is Haman. Close. Anyone? No? Okay. Um, so, his name's Haman, and he's, a, he, he's the bad guy in the story, and, um, and, and he's going to come to power um, underneath Xerxes, and this is when things start to go horribly wrong. Now, before I tell you about Haman, let me just tell you one more thing. At the end of chapter two, I didn't cover it last week, but let me tell you this quickly because it shows up much later. At the end of chapter two, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, is hanging out by the city gate and he overhears some guards plotting treason against Xerxes. He overhears this and he tells his, his cousin, Queen Esther, hey, these guards are planning to kill the king. Esther turns to the king and says, these guards are planning to kill you. They, they snuff out the plot. Those guys are hung, hanged, um, and, and they, that's the end of that. But at the very end of that story, what it tells you is that Xerxes was happy about that, you know, that he snuffed out the treason plot or whatever, and he writes down Mordecai's name in this book, this book like the, the history of the king and all the king's exploits and the things that the king did. He writes this down, hey, Mordecai is the one who let me know about the plot and, and, and now I've been saved and that kind of thing. That gets written down. That's a little detail. Tuck that away. That shows up much later. We'll get to it. Um, let's jump into chapter three. Here's where Haman enters the story. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Okay, here's a couple things we need to know about Haman. Haman is referred to as Haman the Agagite. And if you were an ancient Jew reading this story, you would know what an Agagite is. We don't. We're like, it's one of those tribes of people. I don't, I don't know. Agagites are, de are descendants of King Agag, A-G-A-G, -A -G, right? And he is an Amalekite. The Amalekites are descendants of Amalek, who's in the book of Genesis. There is, by the time this comes along, there's about a thousand-year history of conflict between the Jews and the Amalekites. The Amalekites were all but wiped out except for King Agag, and then he started having children, and Haman is one of those descendants. So when the Jews would read this or hear this story, they go, oh, he's one of those people. Those people hate us. There's a long, there's some bad blood there. There's a long history. The, the Amalekites attacked the Jews when they were leaving Egypt with, under Moses in the Exodus. They were attacked. So there's a long history there of, of some bad stuff back and forth. So that's one, that's who Haman is. He comes from that tribe of people. Also, there's this weird thing about people bowing down to Haman. And this is going to kind of set up the conflict in the story. Um, in the ancient world, and even in, in Asian cultures today, it is a sign of respect to bow to people, elderly or, you know, a mentor or, or someone in power or whatever. You would just, you'd bow, right, to, to that person. 
Um, and that was true in, in the ancient world as well. So it's a little bit weird that everybody bows down to Haman. Haman is put in, in basically the second highest in command in Persia. Everybody normally would bow down to him. That's just what you would do for someone in that position. It's a little weird that the text tells us that Xerxes made a, a decree by the king, like it's a rule, you have to bow down to Haman. That probably tells you something about Haman, that people were not real thrilled to have to bow down to this guy. He's, he may be some form of royalty now, but he might just be a royal jerk, and people are like, ugh, I don't like this guy. All right, fine, the king said I have to bow to him, I will. Well, Mordecai's not having it. He's like, I'm not going to bow down to this guy or pay homage to him. All right, listen to what happens next. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to him, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he, desired, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. All right, that escalated quickly, right? right? It, goes, it goes south real quick here. Uh, Mordecai refuses to bow down, and Haman's so irritated by that, he's like, I'm not just going to kill him. I'm going to get his entire group of people, the entire ethnic group. I, I want all of them dead. So here's the first question. Why doesn't Mordecai bow down? Like, how hard is that? Like, I don't know what you have to do in the ancient world. Like, if you got to, like, I'll just bow down. If you really don't like the guy, like, can't you, like, cross your fingers behind your back or something? Isn't there, like, some way to be, like, I'm not really into this, but I'm going to do it because it's expected of me? Um, You know, why won't he do it? I I think part of why he won't do it is he's very principled, and he has convictions, and 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 he says Haman's evil, and Haman's a problem, and Haman's a bad person, and I'm not bowing, I'm not bowing down to him. Now, I've tried to tell you last week, and I, and I want to look at throughout this series, what are the parallels between that time and that situation and our time and our situation? Where, where can we go? All right, what's the application for, for here and now? And I think one thing to consider is whenever we have civil leaders over us, a mayor, a governor, a, you know, council members, president, senators, all these people, congressmen, all these people that are in leadership, um, is it okay for us to respect them, follow them? Should we respect the office but not the person holding the office? That kind of thing. How do we, how do we sort through that? Um, because there are a lot of people who are like, I don't like the current you know, president, senator, governor, whatever. I don't respect them, um, but I may still respect the office, but I'm not going to respect the person. We, we kind of have those sort of things that, that we do. Um, well, Mordecai's not having any of that. He's not respecting the office that Haman has, and he's not respecting Haman as a person, and he's doing that by not bowing. Um, my son, one of my sons did a paper recently on um, should Christians, and this is just for Christians, right? Not, not like for everybody, but his, the, the paper was should Christians effectively bow to authority, or, or should Christians obey the authorities that are around them? And so he and I went and looked in the scriptures, and we looked at Romans, and we looked at Exodus, and we looked at a couple things. And, and basically, I think the conclusion was, yes, Christians should obey authorities. Like, there are govern, there's governors, and there's rulers, there's people in power to organize civil society, and most of that is for your good. Like, traffic laws are a good thing. Um, you know, laws that say if you kill someone, you go to jail, that's a good thing. Like, there, there, there are good laws that are in place. Um, the only exception there, then, that you would make 
and you do see example of this in the scriptures as well, is when the government passes laws that are immoral and unethical and asks you to do unethical things. And so that, that would be the exception. But man, that's tricky, right? Like the devil is all up in those details of how do you, how do you splice that out? When is this an unethical thing? When is this, is a, when is this a good thing? Well, for, for Haman, um, in his conscience, he was like, I can't bow down to... To, or, or for uh, Mordecai, in his conscience, he's like, I can't bow down to Haman. Um, the, the, for him, it was an immoral thing to do, and, and it violated a principle. Um, and so he, he, he wasn't having it. Now, what do we know about Haman? I think what you'll see, and Haman is often held up in Scripture as an example of pride, as a, a person whose pride gets the best of them. Haman's chief sin is his pride. It's not lust. It's not anger. Even though it says he was furious, he had this fury that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him, it's beyond anger. There's something deeper going on there. It's, it's pride. The pride says, is, is Haman saying, I'm a big deal and you're not bowing down to me. I don't care if everybody in the whole world bows down to me, but if one person's not, that galls him. That's pride. It says everybody's got to do this. And not just I'm going to punish him, I'm going to kill all of his people. That is pride out of control, not just anger. Why won't you bow down to me? I'm important. This whole group is going to pay for it. So let's read on what happens next. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. All right, first of all, it says they cast poor, they cast lots. Poor um, is the word for lots, um, and this is going to end, this book ends with the festival of Purim, which is based on that idea of this lots thing. Uh, Purim is celebrated by Jews to this day as they remember the story of Esther and God's deliverance there. Um, but in the ancient world, it was a common thing to cast lots. Think of it as like throwing dice or something as a way of trying to figure out the fate and, or the, the, what the gods want. Probably the closest thing we would have to it is if you're facing a hard decision, you go, I'm going to flip a coin. What are we saying? Like, I'm going to leave it up to fate, or I'm going to leave it up to the gods, or, or whatever. I'm going to move this decision outside of myself. I'll flip a coin, and whatever it comes up with, that's what I'm going to do. So Haman is doing that for a while. It's going on for months, trying to, you know, I don't know, if he, if he asked for a re-roll, if he didn't like the answer he got. I don't know how that worked, but he's, he's working on it for months. And then he finally goes to the king after casting lots. Um, and, and the irony is, he's going to the king. He, he casts lots in order to figure out what the gods want. But the irony of it is that the true God is going to do what he wants in this situation, no matter what Haman comes up with, and, and God's going to do his work throughout this whole thing. So he approaches Xerxes, and he says, hey, there's this whole group of people, and they don't follow your laws. He never says what group, right? He doesn't say it's the Jews. He said, there's a group out there. They got different laws. They're all over the kingdom. They're not following you. Here's an idea. Let's kill all of them. 
and I'll pay some money. And, and even like you can, if you kill them, you can, if every man, woman, and child, if you kill them all, we can take their possessions and their money and sort of refill the king's treasuries because the king was a little low on funds after a failed military campaign in Greece. And then he threw a six-month party. That's expensive. Um, so king's coffers a little low. And so Haman proposes, we'll get money out of this. Also, you'll get rid of this people who don't really follow your rules who are living in your culture and doesn't really tell them which group it is. And so, um, there, so the king sets out a decree and says, this is what's going to happen um, on this day, on this month. Um, and, and, and we're going to write this out as a decree. It's going to go out over all the 127 provinces on this day, on this month, we are going to kill all the Jews. That's the, that's the decree that goes out there. And it's straight up like Godfather. Like, this is the day all of these people are going to die. Or, if you haven't seen the Godfather, it is like the, when the Jedis all die in that one prequel. Uh, where it's like, at this moment, the prequel that I pretend doesn't exist, but I will, it does exist for this story only. Um, there's that scene where they all die, it, which is very Godfather-like. It, this is a similar thing of like, on this day, all these people are going to die, uh, is, is the decree that's sent out. Um, you can imagine that goes over kind of oddly with the people. In fact, here's the way the chapter ends. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city was thrown into confusion. So they first issued this decree just in the city, and... Um, and it doesn't mention the king's name there. It, it, the, the writer's letting us know that Haman is really the, the thing, the, the tail wagging this dog. Um, and they, again, are sitting down to drink as there's a lot of drinking in this book. Um, and they're like, all right, good, good work. We, we made a good plan. And this decree has gone out. And the city is thrown into confusion. People are like, wait, we're going to kill all the Jews? Like, why? Like, what's, what's that about? It seems it's, it's confusing. Um, but Haman and the king are having some booze and feeling pretty good about their plan. Um, Haman is a picture of pride, is a picture of what happens when our pride goes un unchecked. And the scripture over and over and over again warns us against pride. Um, James chapter 4, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs eleven two: when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs thirteen ten: by insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who but with those who take advice is wisdom. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Over and over, the scriptures warn us, pride will kill you. Pride will put you in opposition to God. It's the humble person that will be rewarded. And if you're going to set yourself in opposition to God, it's going to go badly for you. It's going to be your undoing. So you have to keep pride in check and notice it. We see it in Haman, and I think there's a couple principles here that we need to notice about pride. Pride, number one, pride makes you a fool. Pride will make you into a fool. A fool will mess up and never learn anything from it and will continue to mess up. They'll continue to double down on failure because for a fool, a prideful fool, nothing is ever your fault. It was always her fault. It was his fault. That relationship broke up because of her. That string of relationships that are always bad, 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 it's because of her, it's because of him, it's because of them. That job messed up because it was because of those people. They didn't respect my abilities and my talents. Um, it's always someone else's fault, and we spend so much energy. When we are prideful, we spend so much energy justifying ourselves. And that's where Haman is. He's not going to learn through the course of this book. It's not like he's going to have this growth arc where he, he really starts to become humble. That, that really never happens. 
he's a fool and he's not seeing what's going on. He's not seeing that, hey, you know, you think it would be a warning sign. Nobody really wants to bow down to you unless the king makes it so, but he doesn't see any of that because he's a fool. Number two, pride makes you evil. Now that seems like strong wording, but there's a couple things to think about there. Number one, in Christian theology, uh, it has always been taught and believed that the reason Satan fell from God's grace is because of pride. Um, pride really is the tool of the devil, that, that, that Satan thought he was more powerful or more important than God, and that caused him to be uh, separated from God. His desire was to be greater than God. So pride really is in that sort of evil realm, but also pride is the root underneath all of our other sins. So if you think about it, if you name a sin, you can usually trace it back to the pride underneath it. So, for example, lust. If, if, if you're having lustful thoughts, behavior, actions, you go like, I want her, I desire him, the, I, I want to have them. Underneath that is pride because it's the pride that says, I deserve this. I should have this. Why not? I, I've earned this. I get to have this person or I get to control or own that person. Um, underneath the lust is actually um, pride. Uh, underneath unforgiveness and bitterness is pride. Um, you may have, if you think about your family tree and you think about the people who might get together at Thanksgiving or something like that, my guess is that there's some brokenness in relationships. There's, well, this aunt doesn't talk to this cousin because something happened 13 years ago and they still haven't sorted it out or my mom's upset with this person and doesn't get the invite to the wedding and all that kind of stuff that goes on within a family tree. And there's bitterness that grows and the reason it grows is because of pride. It's because I'm not going to move on with this until they come and grovel and say that they're sorry and they're probably never going to come say that they're sorry. Therefore, I'm just going to stay bitter about this thing. I'm going to stay in this place while they stay in that place. And underneath all of that is, is pride, and we grow bitter. Pride is even underneath some things like fear. Um, we get very fearful and anxious when things aren't working out the way we would like them to work out. And really, underneath that is pride. It's, it's pride that says, I know what's best. I want to be in control. And I'm fearful when it's not going to work out because my best plan isn't going to happen. Even underneath fear, um, there's pride, especially when we get paralyzed by fear. We think, well, if my plan doesn't work out, it's going to be a disaster. That's, that's pride talking. Um, and, and there's evil in there. Even if you look at, look at the larger sort of systemic things and, and just see how pride is underneath it all, What's underneath racism? What's underneath classism? What's underneath extreme like ethnic nationalism? What's underneath sexism? Underneath all of these things is pride. It is, I'm better. I deserve. My group is better than your group. My, my people are better than your people. Like That's what's underneath all of this stuff. So pride really can take you down a very evil road. So it makes you a fool, it makes you evil. And number three, pride is the one sin that hides itself. This is why it's so dangerous. Pastor and author Tim Keller says, pride is the carbon monoxide of sin, killing you without having any ability to tell you it's happening. You know, carbon monoxide poisoning, right? You hear that, people just like fall asleep and then they end up dying because they don't recognize that the carbon monoxide is in the air slowly killing them. And, and, I, and I see that too with pride, right? 
Like I sit down with people and talk about their struggles. And, and over the years, people have sat with me and they've been like, man, Chris, I have an anger problem. I just snap, I fly off the handle and my kids and my, my wife and my, my, my boyfriends and, 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 and just different people. We talk about like anger, anger. Oh, it's, it, we know anger when it comes out. We, we see it, other people see it. And we know when our anger has gotten us in trouble. So people will acknowledge that. People will say, Chris, I have a lust problem. I've been looking at this website. I've been looking at this. I've been doing this. And lust is a big thing. And I, the way I look at women or, or the way I look at men, or whatever, like whatever. We know, we know lust is a, is a thing, right? We, we understand those sins um, because they're more obvious to us. What we don't ever, what I never hear anyone say to me is, man, I have a, a pride problem. I'm just so proud. I just got a lot of, I just, I'm so proud. I got, it caused me a lot of issues. I never hear that. It's because we don't notice it. You notice other sins. You notice when you commit adultery, right? You're not like, Committed adultery, like, oh, wait, this isn't my wife. Like, you know, you know what you're doing there, right? Same thing, but other things too. Greed, right? You, you, you go, or you don't go, like, huh, how did that $300,000 that I embezzled get into my bank account from work or whatever? Like, you know what's happening there. But with pride, it comes at you sideways and, and you, don't, you don't see it coming. You're, not, you're sucking in the carbon monoxide and, and you, don't even, you don't even notice it. Here's how subtle pride is. I've been talking about pride for like 10 minutes now, and you're sitting there thinking that I'm talking about somebody else. You're sitting there thinking, oh, you know who needs to hear this message, right? You're like, I'm gonna get the podcast and send this to my mom. Oh man, my brother really needs to hear this. Oh dude, my best friend, this is like, he needs to, he needs to recognize, right? This is what we do. This is why it's so subtle, because we think it's about somebody else. And we don't acknowledge that it's about us. And we're sucking in that carbon monoxide and, and, and we don't see it. As long as I can be, I don't have to be perfect and we all be like, I'm not perfect. As long as I can be better than somebody, I think I'm fine. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm better than my brother. I'm better than my friend. They're, they're the ones stuck in pride, not me. So what do we do about that? How, what, what is the antidote to pride? I've said before when we talk about greed, I'd say the antidote to greed is generosity. Intentionally give money away to fight greed. I would say there's a couple things as an antidote to pride. Um, let me just give you two. There's probably more, but let me just give you two. Number one, stay immersed in Scripture. This means actually read the Bible. And here's why. When you read the Bible, especially the New Testament, because culturally there's some tough stuff to work through in the Old Testament, but as you read the New Testament, um, as you're going through it, what you will discover is that for as much as people say, like, the Bible is an operator's manual for you or it's an owner's manual about life and it's God's love letter to you and all that, the more you read the Bible, the more you realize it's just not about you. It isn't. It's about God and Jesus is the hero of the story. You're in there somewhere, kind of. Like, there's, there's stuff that we need to think about, right? But it's actually not about us. And the more we read that, the more we understand it, because we all, especially if we're successful, we all start to believe our own stuff and believe we're kind of awesome or whatever. And reading the scripture reminds us, no, no, like God has a bigger plan that's way bigger than you. This is why the Apostle Paul, who you could argue was one of the greatest Christians ever, the Apostle Paul says, refers to himself as the chief of sinners. How do you get to be chief of sinners? Like, and, and how can that be true? Because if we met him, we'd be like, he's really good. If he's chief of sinners, what am I like, general of sinners or something like other major of sinners? I don't know, but like, how is that true? Well, he's just spent a lot of time with God and he's spent a lot of time in the scripture. 
And he knows, hey, I've got stuff too. It doesn't mean you're going to think you're a terrible person. Um, it, that, that doesn't have to happen. Um, but you need to be realistic. And this is true of the people that I have known over the years. The people that I've known usually that are older, wiser, and the people that I would say are humble people, um, the thing I notice about them is they don't seem to think or care a lot about themselves, or at least not as much as other people do. They're just not all into themselves. They're interested in me or in others. Um, They're interested in the people around them, but they're not about themselves. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And I think when we are immersed in Scripture, it points us to the God, uh, the God of the universe, and helps us to think of ourselves less. So number one, stay immersed in Scripture um, to, to, to counteract... Really, you have to counteract our culture because our culture, as soon as you leave this room, in a sense, you are surrounded by a message in American culture that says you are everything, you are important, it's about you, it's, it's your life, it's you deserve a break today, uh, have it your way right away, all that kind of thing, which is really trying to sell you something, right? It's consumerism. Um, and, and so that's, the, that's what we're living in right now. And so the challenge is, how do you counteract that? Well, reading the scripture pulls you out and says, no, no, it's not all about you. Stop that, that thing. Because really, the people who are telling you it's all about you are trying to sell you something. Like, let's step out of that for a second and not be so consumerist. Man, when, when I talk to other pastors and we talk about, like, what are the challenges facing the church today? Kind of things we talk about when we go to conferences or whatever. And, and man, consumerism comes up so much in America anyway. We have these conversations around like, yeah, people are like, I want it this way and this, 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 this. I want like a, the buffet. Um, and, and we got we to gotta push through that and not just make it about all of our individual needs and, and preferences. So number one, stay immersed in Scripture. Number two, I would say intentionally do humble things. If you want to combat pride, intentionally do the humble things. Um, take out the trash. Re- re- brew the coffee. Wash the dishes. Um, do the things, serve other people. This is why we place such an emphasis on service within the church and in the greater Richmond community. We want to be people who serve. Um, we want to be people who go like, it's not about me, I'm going to serve and I'm going to pour out whatever God has given me, I'm going to pour that out for other people. It's important because it's a way to, to, to take the, the spotlight off of you. It's a, it's a way to, to combat pride is when you go like, I'm going to intentionally do things, even humble things, not every not every you know, position that people serve in has a spotlight. I mean, there's, there's people that were here while, while you, know how, you know how today was one of those days where you just want to stay in bed that much longer and the rain's coming down and you like maybe get some coffee or whatever and you're like, oh, I could just stay under this blanket on this sofa forever. You didn't because you're here, good for you. There's other people that are doing that right now, <laughs> but not you. Um, there were people here at seven this morning, at six even, that were setting things up and getting ready for this, right? Because they want to serve, because they believe in what's going on here. There are people working with kids right now in A10 Kids. There are people that are going to work with teenagers on Sunday nights. There's people who are leading small groups during the week. There's people who are putting curriculum together during the week. There's people who are serving all over the place in the community. There's people that are volunteering in Cary Elementary and doing some work there, tutoring math and, and different stuff. Like, because it is, it is the intention of that is I want to serve other people. And, and it, partly the benefit of doing that is it, it helps you to, to be uh, more humble when you intentionally do humble things. 
If you say, that job is beneath me, it's probably a sign that you're not low enough yet. Right? And this is the problem with Haman. Haman is elevated to this position where he is above everybody, and he started acting like it. I'm above everybody. I, I, I've been elevated. Everyone except the king is beneath me. And as soon as we start thinking that people and, and jobs and different things are beneath us, this is, where, this is where the problem comes in. This is where pride starts to destroy us. So let me wrap this up. We'll see how this, this sort of this section kind of wrap up here. Uh, chapter 4, listen how this starts. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, whenever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. This is dark. This is a dark period for the Jews. Because here they have been, they've been kicked out of their homeland a hundred years earlier by the Babylonians. They're now living in this country that's not their own. They're foreigners there. They don't like the culture of the people, the whatever, but they're living there and trying to get by. And then because some guy gets angry in power, um, the decree goes out to kill them all. And so Mordecai is publicly mourning, weeping bitterly aloud in the city, and then uh, Jews all across are begging God, please save us. Um, and, and, and how do you think, how do you think the Jews felt about Haman? Right, bad, right? But how do you think they felt about God in that moment? Because I'm thinking if, if that decree goes out and you're Jewish, you're sitting there going, seriously, God? You've already kicked us out of our home. We're already having to live here. Now you're just going to watch while we all get slaughtered? Why are you abandoning? I thought we were your people. It doesn't pay to be your people. This isn't great. Like, how dark is this for them? Now, here's the truth. God is going to do something in this. He's going to work. And in fact, he's already gone to work. Putting Esther in the position that she's in is going to be very important. We'll see this next week. Who Mordecai is, that's going to be important. Like, God is already doing the unseen work in the shadows, behind the scenes, to bring deliverance for his people. But they don't know that yet. What they know is, this is bad and it's getting worse and we're all going to die and they felt sick. Have you ever been there? Have you ever wept and fasted and prayed, and cried, and begged God to change something, to say, God, I can't do this anymore. Will you fix her? God, I can't do this anymore. I don't know what to do. Can you change him? This relationship is broken. This, this, this work thing is broken. Like this, it, It's all coming apart. God, the sky is falling. Can you do something? You beg God, and you hope that he will do something. This is those freak-out moments. Here's the truth. Just because God is unseen doesn't mean he's not doing anything. He's doing things behind the scenes. It was true for them, and it's true for us. And the hard times that we walk through, the sky is falling moments, are the opportunities for us to trust him. This isn't theoretical for me. This is real. I have had freak-out moments in the last couple years, honestly. I've had freak-out moments. Um, when you lead anything, there's pressure and as a church in 2016, when we decided to buy property, you take on a mortgage. 
Anyone who's ever taken on a mortgage for anything knows that that ups the pressure and it's significant and, it, and, and I've had freak out moments. I've had freak out moments where I stand on conviction or principle and say, hey, this is what I think needs to happen and people get upset with me and they're like, fine, I'm gonna take my marbles and go and they get upset and, and, and walk away and I've had those freak out moments like, God, is this right? Is this good? Is this what we should be doing and, and, and have all those challenges. Um, I've got a mentor that I call in Northern Virginia and every now and then I'll call him and, and sometimes I'll have those freak out moments with him on the phone. He's a pastor so he understands what pastors complain about. And sometimes I'll be like, you know, this is going on. I explain, oh, this frustration, this is happening. I don't know about this or whatever. And he'll listen to me and he'll ask a few questions. And then he'll say, Chris, whose church is this? And I'm like, God's. But I started it. Um, so mine too, you know. And I know the right answer is God here. It's like Sunday school. I'm supposed to say Jesus, but... I guess, you know, and he's like, yeah, it's God's church. Like, so do you think he cares about it? Yes, he cares about it. I wish he would care about it a little more. I would, you know, whatever. Like, you start, you just do this, right? And he just reminds me, this is the Lord's. It's in his hands. And I need that reminder. You need that reminder about your life and about stuff going on or about our church or anything. We just need that reminder. Like, this is the Lord's work. Um, it doesn't belong to me or you or any of us. Um, it, is, it is his church. And um, that's helped me in my freak out moments when I can start feeling like the sky is falling. Um, so if you think the sky is falling, let me ask you these questions and then we're done. Do you, do, you, do you truly belong to God? Do you think you belong to God? Does he see you? Do you believe that God actually cares for you in your situation? Well, if you do then live that way and trust him and surround yourself with other people like some that are in this room who will remind you of the goodness of God and will remind you that you can trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we have our freak out moments and we confess those to you that we have these moments where we lack trust, where we get scared, we give in to our worst fears and anxieties. We think the worst of you, of ourselves. We think the worst of other people inside the church, outside the church. Um, and we, we allow things to be blown apart. And God, this is where our pride creeps up. This is where Satan goes to work. And God, I, I confess that I have allowed that in my life. And I have thought bad of people and intentions and all of that. And so, um, God, I, I pray you push us through that and help us to be people who humble themselves before you, that we're honest about our failures and our flaws and our faults and all that. Um, God, um, I pray we get immersed in your word to be reminded of who we are and that we, um, we will intentionally do humble things and serve others um, as, a, as an antidote to that pride. Um, God, thank you for the example of Mordecai taking a stand, of, of Esther that will look at what she, how she handles this next week, um, and just the way this whole story is recorded for us so we can learn from it. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.